0: So here we are on the street and you cutting hair. Yeah. Well how do you feel about having to do that? Well, right now it's, a,
1: it's amazing because I've never cut hair in the outdoors like I am right now. It's, uh, it's, it's very liberating to be out here under the sun, cutting hair. Wow.
2: You're listening to the Brooklyn USA podcast, an occasional audio love letter from Brooklyn to the world.
0: A different experience.
1: a Totally different
0: experience.
1: Never, never, never felt like this before as a barber. Just being out in the outdoors, cutting hair under the sun.
3: Hey, what's
0: up? You see me getting my hair cut, right? I love it. I love it. This is the sun called... Cut. The sun cut. sun cut, baby. Have a good one. This week,
2: we thought that we were maybe getting back to normal, but instead, we're redefining it again and again.
1: You know, uh, the people sit down kind of differently, too. Everyone sit down as if... As if they're in a comfortable space. Oh yeah, relaxing. Yeah, yeah. You know, take 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 it in the sun. Yeah, natural so So, but you know, as as the weather changes, it, it's not the same. So, that's probably what you know makes it a, a greater joy. You know. Um,
2: Nature.
1: Yeah, nature.
2: First, we listen to the city's heartbeat to find out if New York is as dead as they say. Then, filmmaker Shana Feinberg gives us a glimpse into how New York's New Normal is treating moms throughout the city. Next, we check back in with a local restaurant tour to see what's on the menu for fall. Then, we get a taste of some home-cooked quarantine cuisine. And finally, we visit Griffin's World to take a test and get lost in a book.
1: Time, I might have had an issue, or we'll see if we could work something out, but uh, you know, everybody's trying to recoup now in these hard times, you know, everybody's trying to recoup.
2: New York may have gotten its groove back this summer, but we've still got a lot of year left to get through.
1: So you gotta be creative. So you gotta be creative, you gotta figure out.
2: And while spiking case numbers and dropping temperatures may signal the end of the world as we know it, I feel fine in Brooklyn, USA.
1: Differently.
0: Well, the sun feels good sitting out here, I can tell you that much.
1: Don't you feel, you know, relaxed? Don't you feel like you're sitting on a, sitting on a beach drinking coconut water?
0: I do. Well, a pina colada.
1: Pina colada, okay. <laughs> um, no, uh...
4: I never seen New York City so fucking dead.
0: The Flatiron Building, Broadway, 23rd Street, Madison Square Park, super dead.
5: So lunchtime in the most famous restaurant in New York City and there's almost nobody here.
4: I'm on West Broadway and look at this. West Broadway.
5: 23rd Street, empty. Completely empty. Oh my God, this is the number one tourist restaurant in New York City, crazy.
6: You know, the New York is dead line as someone who, you know, who's grown up in the city, who has two parents that also grew up in the city, that type of language isn't new to me. My name is Michael Higgins, Jr. I am a community organizer and I've been a part of the Brooklyn anti-gentrification network now for about four years. BAM was founded back in 2016 we had our first action which was at a real estate summit at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Talking about just the ways in which institutions such as BAM such as the Brooklyn Museum are increasingly being used as sites for real estate professionals to talk about how they are going to transform communities around these now nationally known institutions and what does it mean to really kind of be host of forces that are actually displacing community members. I'm out here today
4: to fight against the evil of gentrification, luxury housing, mega developers who do not care whether
7: or not people have a
6: place to live. Gentrification particularly in New York it has been this like multi-decade process that goes back all the way to the seventies when the city had another crisis, not as bad as this one, but a deep fiscal crisis where city government stepped back from doing a lot of work around service provision and really looked at its assets in terms of thousands of buildings and properties and land it owned and said that we'll instead leverage this on the private market for a profit,
4: What should be done with the region's older cities outside Manhattan? A, rebuild them as major centers of economic activity and housing. B, abandon them over
6: time. In this moment where there are many people who can't pay rent, there are many businesses that can't reopen, we're seeing potentially the setting for disaster capitalism, where we're gonna have large corporations swoop in, buy buildings, evict tenants that are in a very precarious situation where they're months behind, and use this moment to really kind of consolidate and to really expand their power. It was like the moon now, nothing but
8: minerals. Buildings had collapsed, their wood had been consumed, and their stones had crashed down some walls still stood but windows and roofs were gone and there was nothing inside but ashes and dollops of melted glass that is kurt vonnegut's description of dresden after its destruction by american bombers in february 1945. but this is the south bronx
6: and so that means that our fight has to be around how we can make sure that tenants stay in their homes and that landlords aren't harassing them it's also of getting government to really take a more active role in the support of small businesses and really making sure that community spaces are not lost and privatized because of this crisis. And this is just a, a forgotten city, a forgotten border. It looks like a ghost town, a ghost town. It's the
4: quietest I've ever seen in New York.
6: New York is dead isn't new. I, I see it as kind of a, a rebrand of the famous Daily News front cover, Drop Dead New York from 1975, which you know came out of the then-President Gerald Ford not being willing to bail out New York City in a moment where it was very close to going bankrupt.
9: 15 mayors, most from big cities, appealed to the Congressional Joint Economic Committee today for some federal emergency help for New York City. The first answer from the Ford administration was a loud firm, no.
0: The costs and risks associated with any program to provide special federal financial assistance to prevent default substantially outweigh the benefits.
10: All I sense is that you
9: have said that you'll take care of the banks. In other words, don't worry about the folks in the cities, we'll take care of the banks. I've heard some of that
6: stuff in my younger life. and I didn't like it then and I like it less now.
4: Until a generation ago, few people questioned whether cities were needed.
9: Now we are beginning to question. There have been reports about people fleeing the city during the pandemic. The number of new leases in Manhattan falling 23%
5: over the last year. A record rise in rental vacancies. About a half million people left. 13,000 empty apartments. How many of those 400, 500,000 people will return to New York City? And we just don't know yet.
6: A sizable number of people have moved away, whether they are transplants that have moved, to be back with their families, or people who have taken this moment to go to our suburbs.
8: New York is almost broke, and you know why? Because too much money is going to the suburbs.
4: They're killing us.
6: The big muscle is beginning to move out. Now this is a pattern that is happening uh, all over. Seeing so many people flee to the suburbs, it's frustrating because really so many of Our suburbs, not only across the country, but particularly here in New York City, have avoided enforcement of the Fair Housing Act and those municipalities being required to build affordable housing. And, you know, for the most part, those lower income people really being trapped in central cities that were increasingly disinvested in and really seen as places where the police had to protect suburbs from.
1: The only thing that you see here is poverty, and that in itself is not a crime.
6: The decision to really marginalize those communities and really subject them to police violence was a harm, and it, it, it caused trauma that I think is playing out um, again in this moment, but trauma that's never really been acknowledged and has never really been allowed to heal. Right now, we have to push back against common narratives that we're hearing in the news about you know, New York City seeing a rise in crime and that New York City is returning to a vision of lawlessness that was portrayed back in the 70s and the 80s.
0: 1988, the crime rate in the United States rises 400%. 1991, the United States police force is formed. 1997, New York City is a walled, maximum security prison.
6: John Carpenter's escape from New York. Crime connected to urban spaces, connected to communities of color, particularly black communities, has a certain presence in our nation's politics and in our city's politics, where we use these moments of crisis not to really rethink our social contract and like what we owe each other as citizens as neighbors, but as a moment to often expand upon preexisting prejudices, use of the carceral state, use of force to make sure that property rights are being respected. We've got real violence in the streets, a massive increase in shootings. This is New York over the past month. The 80s and the 90s played out in a certain way because instead of investment for employment, investment for education, health, we instead just said, These people need to be policed. And we continue to see the United States becoming this carceral state where we incarcerate more people per capita than anywhere else in the world. In this moment, we have to make space for both a rise in crime, which I think is real, there has been a rise in shootings, but rethink public safety in a way that says that police aren't necessarily here to protect us. And so we have to create our own solutions for what safety looks like with or without the police.
11: Everybody's saying New York is dead. I don't know what New York you guys are in.
3: What New York are you guys in?
11: Because all I see is people.
6: The city's not dead. There's a problem where that type of kind of relatively wealthy, relatively comfortable, relatively safe, group of people that have an overrepresented voice in our media. It comes from a certain audience who kind of sees New York as this wonderland of artistic and cultural offerings, and in this moment where those offerings are not available, the city as they know it has kind of ceased to be.
12: New York is like so dead. It's really never coming back from this. No, I know like I can't even go to yoga I know it's so annoying. My soul cycle is like shut down This is so annoying. People have been publishing articles and saying whatever, that New York is dead, New York is never coming back from this pandemic. What part of New York are you talking about? So recently I've seen a lot of videos in which people that aren't originally from New York are showing you guys what it's like to live in New York from their perspective. But of course most of them live in the city or they are gentrifiers, no offense. You're talking about the parts where people got money to just come in and out as they please and when it gets hard, they flee and they leave the city. That's cool. That's your choice. But don't claim New York is dead when you haven't even come to the places where kids are running through fire hydrants. Mom and pop shops are thriving because we're sticking in our own neighborhood and we're contributing to the community. All of our, all of our, everybody's outside. Everybody's with masks because we're not a bunch of idiots. And artists artists who don't have jobs right now we're connecting and networking in our own way so how dead is new york is it dead or did it just shed its skin of all the bullshit? you tell me yeah so i don't know who started this rumor that new york is dead guess what it's not dead it's alive why because we're survivors new yorkers are survivors so if you don't like it leave
6: i've been seeing a lot of new organizing that connects the right to housing to things like food justice and you know wondering how we can leverage these networks that now, you know, some of them are now hundreds, if not thousands, of people, and how do we potentially turn these mutual aid networks into spaces where we can really reimagine our neighborhoods and hopefully reimagine our politics through that as well.
13: We we're, we're here Uh, We've struggled, we've won
6: some of our struggles, and we've lost some. And we're still here to continue struggling.
1: Well, I can't say it the way I want to. It's not dead. It's not dead. There's people sitting around thinking now, trying to take advantage. It's not dead. Most people, now people got, got, got chairs in the street, trying to feed people. It's not dead. Not did the, the, the rent to come down. With the, what they charge for the rent to rent the uh, store? That'll drop eventually, and people will be back in there and People be fighting for space again. It's not dead.
14: As a true New Yorker and someone who has been part of nightlife since I was sixteen, it is absolutely important to New York City culture. And if it disappears, New York City is nothing but a bunch of condos. Culture from nightlife transcends everything. It influences everything. So much of what we see in, in, on the runway is ripped out of nightlife. Even movies and music videos. If you think about Madonna and where she started voguing, and that was a complete lift from House of Ninja and Paris is Burning.
9: Strike, strike the Instead of fighting, you would dance it out on dance floor. Come on, baby, take your time.
14: The idea that we were going to possibly lose some of these beautiful safe spaces that allow people the forum for ultimate. Expression was terrifying to me, and I think it was terrifying to a lot of people. My,
12: <laughs>
14: My name is Deanna Mora, owner of Friends and Lovers in Crown Fleets, Brooklyn, and also the co-founder of NYC Nightlife United.
9: My name is Varghese Chaco, co-founder of City Farm Presents and founding partner of NYC Nightlife United.
5: I'm Dash Speaks. I'm a DJ, uh, the creative director of Friends and Lovers, and one of the founding partners at NYC Nightlife United.
14: Friends and Lovers started in 2013, but we actually opened the doors on January 1st in 2014. Once the pandemic hit, it just stopped everything. We had no option to operate. We still really can't operate now. Before all of this happened, we employed about 12 people. And right now we're employing about two and a half people right now, and that's Dash and myself. And that means we're making zero dollars in revenue.
0: Hello, your call cannot be taken at the moment. So please leave your message after the tone.
5: In the beginning of the summers, I think the cultural atmosphere shifted and we moved from just being concerned about this pandemic to being concerned about a lot of other things, whether it's racial equality or police brutality, the upcoming election, things like that, and providing creative content without having some kind of political or community-based message started to feel sort of empty. So, you know, since the early summer, I think we've tried to pivot and find ways that we can actually be impactful with seg content and do things that support our community at large, or just our community here.
14: The so NYC Nightlife United started at the end of March, or at least the idea did. It officially launched in May, and we were lucky enough to get some really special and super brilliant volunteers. My co-founding partner is Rick Lightung from Ad Hoc Presents. For the first time, we were able to really start getting people in the same room and unifying nightlife because by default it's just such a fractured environment like we're all working so hard to keep our head above water that there's just no way for us to really patron other businesses or to become friends or to you know to understand each other's pain points and figure out how we can navigate things. Our biggest goal is to prop up businesses that are kind of left out on the fringes, and that happens to be, you know, Black, people of color, and LGBTQI-focused businesses. Uh, We're not inclusive to them, but we're definitely centering them, because as a POC woman owning a business, I don't have resources. I don't have investors. I fall in a smaller category of venue bar, so I don't actually have access to things that other bigger size venues may have.
9: Deanna and I were stalking each other on LinkedIn. And by stalking each other, I meant we were just pretty prolific communicators. And so we linked up on the platform and friends and lovers, you know, props to Dash and Deanna. As a fan of entertainment, the rep in the neighborhood in Brooklyn in general caught my ear. Once we kind of got into the weeds of what she was working on, they invited me in and it was something that was, has been a really good fit. The sense of purpose is there. And I think it runs very deep, both from a professional standpoint, but then also from a cultural standpoint. You know, I think the successes that we're having with our coalition are great and emblematic of the value that it brings to our communities.
5: For me in the summer, when this kind of happened is when I really started to pivot from just focusing on Friends and Lovers to focusing on NYC Nightlife United a little bit more just because, or a lot more actually, because it felt like this is something we can actually do that's actually going to make an impact on nightlife now,
9: but also the way that nightlife looks in the future. From a membership standpoint, we have about 20 or so partner venues that have expressed support in both from a media and marketing standpoint and amplification standpoint. Part of the challenge was making sure that we are breaking out of our own personal chambers. You know, culture is kind of have its own fiefdoms, if you will, and so making sure that we're reaching out to other, you know, audiences and venues that cater to different audiences that might not necessarily be the same that come to venues that we own. So that's been a really interesting challenge that we've been focused on as well because our proof of concept is to be able to help these venues.
14: We've made a fortune for these alcohol brands, like help us now. Wouldn't it be great if they were the heroes of nightlife, right?
9: With regards to those that can apply, we both support the venues and the owners themselves, as well as the staff. So we have two types of grants: the one or for the business owners and themselves, as well as any staff that operate within the venue. So that's bartenders, barbacks, security, sound technicians, lighting technicians, performers, promoters, and The way that we're able to kind of be able to help our colleagues and peers is that we've created an independent commission of music industry leaders from the communities within the Black POC and LGBTQIA audiences. So they will be reviewing all of the applications as they come in and then prioritizing those that they feel deserve the help. Because there are so many organizations that are operating, but none with the community focus. That NYC Nightlife United has shown, right? I mean, there's a need for the conversations to happen at the federal and government level for the grants, but I can tell you 2020 is just a matter of survival for everyone. And so, much less these small businesses that were the first to close and last to reopen.
13: Nightlife in New York City going dark. Bars, restaurants, entertainment venues shut down. In Voluntary
15: closure notices are plastered all over small
5: businesses. I work Across in the restaurant the industry, so yes, absolutely. remarkably quiet in this typically crazy city. I think New York City is such a great place in so many ways, and on a big scale, one of the things I like to say about New York City is that The best words that you can use to describe it are ones that talk about how indescribable it is. You know, it's diverse, it's ever-changing, it is always moving, it's always growing, it's always expanding, and there's always something different. And I think nightlife is really kind of emblematic of that.
14: And so it's become more and more important for us to level set the mindset of everyone else that isn't in nightlife to remind them what it actually meant. It could mean it was where you proposed to your wife at a jazz bar. It could mean where you met your girlfriend at a dance party. Like, thinking about what it it means to everyone is super important and trying to get them to understand that that still is what it serves as a purpose for everything else in New York City.
9: I think a metamorphosis is definitely happening. We've been hearing for years that New York City has been a gilded playground for rich people all of the minorities and underrepresented voices have not had a seat at the table and have been pushed out to the boroughs and there's always been a cultural case for arts I think now we're seeing the economic case for it and so I think unfortunately money talks and so you're seeing the value you know only recently we saw that the mayor's office of nightlife came out with this study that like 2.4 billion dollars of you know economic value was derived from nightlife and the ancillary lift that it brings to the city and then plus the 300,000 jobs just in nightlife. If you add in our brothers and sisters in hospitality, you know, you're looking at a million jobs. And so at a time where everyone is just struggling to survive, I think we're finally seeing beyond just the cultural cachet, but the actual economic driver in stark focus of the variety of industries that it supports. I have been so
5: frustrated watching and listening to people saying that New York City is dead
9: says the city is, like dead forever. But what does this mean for the future of the Big Apple? Like
1: you walk around, it's not like see you soon signs, it's for lease, for rent signs. The entire economic
4: ecosystem is in trouble. Yeah, it's, it's a domino effect for sure, James, and, and I think it yeah. makes some very valid points.
5: But then the second thought and the second feeling was, you know what, if you feel that way, like please just get out of here and like let the real creatives and the people that really buy into what New York City and the culture of New York City are, do the work because anyone that believes that New York City is dead really never understood what made it alive in the first place. And that isn't to say that there aren't serious challenges, but those challenges existed before COVID. If you're looking at the cost of running a business in this city, the cost of living for artists and creatives, you know, I think it, it comes down to an idea that artists need to learn how to commodify their art so quickly to such a degree that it compromises the art and I think that's something that has nothing to do with COVID. That really just has to do with the grip that real estate developers and the rich by and large have on New York City and subsequently New York City nightlife.
14: Dash and I as pure new yorkers will never agree that new york city is dead the reality of it is new york city will never die right now i call it a sifting of the people who didn't actually belong here because you cannot leave your community when it needs you most so you were never part of it and that's actually unacceptable it hurts me on a different level because we as the small business owner are doing the most that we can for our entire community. I guess
5: I'm concerned more about what it looks like after this opens and not going back to the normal that is big business and large restaurant groups and large hospitality groups kind of controlling everything and controlling the dialogue and controlling the tone of nightlife by and large. I think New York City deserves to be weird and diverse, and I think it deserves to be queer, and it deserves to be full of strange people and full of great, warm people that are doing odd things. And that, that's the New York City nightlife that I want to see.
14: The other thing is, as humans, we are naturally gregarious. And understanding that we are social beings, and we will always emerge on a dance floor and connect somewhere. But it takes these little times of despair to see really beautiful art and really fantastic music emerge. And I'm excited to see what happens. I think once we're able to open the doors again, what we're going to see and feel is a respect and admiration for everyone who has survived, will have done more for the community. We will hear a new sound. Coming from different artists. We will hear pure music coming from their soul. And I am just so excited to be able to see that.
4: Well, I, I think it's good. I see everybody doing what they want to do, you know, enjoy the life the, the way that they want to enjoy. So that's. I, I can see nothing bad. How I feel? Well, that depends how they feel, you know, because everybody have a different mind, different way to think the situation, you know. In my way, my personal opinion, we're good. We're still good. We're gonna get out from that situation that we live in just now, and we bless. Because New York, Brooklyn, New York, I believe that nobody be suffered too much. We we get a lot of help from anywhere, you know? So that's my opinion. So I don't think that Brooklyn is down. I think that we are good. That's my opinion.
15: like watching gigs evaporate and I remember in March it was like all right looks like everything's canceled up until about the summer and then like in April things started disappearing up through like the end of this calendar year we have been doing stoop concerts on Willoughby Avenue between Marcy and Nostrand in Bed-Stuy, Bedford-Stuyvesant, in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, I, it strokes my ego to say that we were some of the first people off the bat to be doing this, which has now become the de facto way to see live music in New York City. One day, the bass player was over, and he was rec- we were recording some tracks together. We realized uh, we, we both play in the band of one of my best friends, Kali Rodriguez, who's the trumpet player who's been playing at these things. And we realized, uh, with the exception of the saxophonist in the band, everyone in that band is in town. As anyone in the art scene in New York will tell you, most of the people you know aren't from New York. And a lot of people that that aren't from New York skipped town when all this went down. So it was kind of amazing that we actually, out of six members of the band, five of them were all in town. So we just was like, man, let's do it. You know, so many gigs in New York pay crap to begin with, like especially for jazz. If they pay anything at all, it's just like, man, if we're going to make no money, might as well do it in front of the crib and have fun and play for the neighborhood. Well, Sometimes the tips have been good. I will say, especially the first couple weeks, people were so starved for music, but we really just started doing it because we missed playing together and wanted to, to get on it. You know, so many musicians were doing the remote music-making thing where you lay down a track and someone else lays down a track. And that can be amazing, and it can be really beautiful. And especially with good musicians, there's a lot you can do with that. But it's not as much fun. That doesn't scratch the same itch as actually just getting together and making music does. <laughs> On trumpet, Kylie Rodriguez-Pena, Xavier Del Castillo on saxophone, Gabriel Chakarhi on the keyboard, Bam Bam Rodriguez on the bass. Victor Pablo Garcia Gaetan on congas, and yours truly, Zach O'Farrell on the drums. (laughs) Gina, she's an amazing singer. She sings her ass off. opera singer is the fantastic fabulous Sasha Gutierrez Montano who also in August became my wife. Uh, We had a COVID wedding born and bred Brooklynite. I'm surprised that anyone would deign to say that they think New York is done, because what city in this country has been through more than New York? There's something about these moments in New York that really come to define what the next era of New York is going to be. The vibe is so much more hanging out on the street, listening to music on the street, playing dominoes, staying on the stoop and being loud. and It's just more of that happening now. Because certain segments of the population are leaving, those are the same segments that would have been making complaints. This is one of those things where New York can come back and be more of what it really is. People are starting to do gigs and there's starting to be situations where you can start getting paid to play again. I don't know. I don't, I'm not quite sure what we're going to do when it gets too cold to play outside. It'll probably go back to more to stuff like at the beginning of the thing, you know, remote projects, live stream concerts from home. I think musicians will have a better idea of how they want to monetize it. But what I will say is I hope next summer that we don't lose all these house concerts that people have been doing. This is a great vibe. And it's always been a shame to me that in a city like New York that has so many of the world's baddest musicians, that sometimes it's, it's not all that accessible to go see music. You know what I mean? If there's a vaccine before next summer, it'd be a shame if next summer everything goes back to the way it was. We don't want it to go back to the way it was. The way it was wasn't necessarily all that great. And you know, as with any crisis, a problem is an opportunity. And the, the people that will most successfully thrive in whatever world is coming our way are the ones who deal with this crisis creatively. And people who aren't artists just have to be willing to be more generous with what they're willing to offer to artists in exchange for art. And if that means that some artists are gonna put up paywalls, be more willing to pay that paywall, if artists can start Patreons You know, if you can, give a couple bucks, or if artists are just giving it away for free and just setting up in front of their house for the pure enjoyment of making music, give and tell people about it, share it. We all have to support each other in this time because the same people that ran away to the Hamptons are also the people who happen to be the gatekeepers and are also the people who happen to think that New York's dead. And all we can do is prove them wrong and show that New York's not dead and it was never as dependent on the gatekeepers as we all were led to believe it was. What I hope happens from all this is that artists of all disciplines take more control over what the scene is. You know what I mean? And that you know, everyone just takes more time to listen to each other and care less about the rat race of it and more about the creativity of it.
0: It's going to be a different type of city. I think it'll come back but it'll be a little bit different and uh, also I'm at the age myself where I'm ready to retire down south. Um, uh, I'm 72, I'll be 73 in January. My wife wants to go down south where she's born you know so uh, so we're just hoping and I just love this atmosphere although I like to get away to the country a lot also but New York I, I was born in Brooklyn so no matter what you do to us, hey, we rise again. Uh, God, uh, you know, that? I had a, I loved a poem by Wadsworth Longsfellow. Uh, I can't remember the whole thing, but it's like, tell me not in mournful numbers, life is but an empty dream. For the soul is dead that slumbers, and things are not as they may seem. Life is real, life is earnest, and the grave is not its goal. Dust thou art to dust returnest, was not written of the soul. Uh, In the world's broad field of battle, in the bivouac of life, be not like driven cattle, be a hero in the strife. Trust no future, however pleasant. Let the dead past bury its dead. Act in the living present, heart within and God overhead. Lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime and in passing leave behind us footprints on the sands of time, footprints that perhaps another crossing over life's solemn main a forlorn and shipwrecked brother or sister. Seeing can take heart again. And the last verse I never knew until later was let us then be up and doing with a heart for any fate still achieving, still pursuing learn to labor and to wait. Plant your seeds and then watch them come up.
16: I'm a working mom. The past five months have felt like this. I juggled my work while caring full time for my son, Monty. Even the simple act of filming him while he danced and rapped felt like too much. In my lighter moments, I wondered if I was raising a young Macklemore. But the truth is, I found this time exhausting. In an act of desperation, I reached out to other working moms around New York City. Here's
13: what they said.
17: Every single thing is different.
13: It's just a shit show from the beginning. I think very early on, I had this experience where I absolutely like saw what my limits were.
17: It can be overwhelming sometimes, especially when I'm trying to
13: juggle my own work. It felt immediately impossible. It was an experience that made me emotionally distance from my child because suddenly I was like, okay, I have to not only like care for them and love them and feed them, but also like educate them. How do you balance out now that all three children are home, you
12: still gotta cook and clean.
13: As of now, we have no more routine, which I miss. My schedule is a disaster. It's it's just like a, a free for all, like people, you know, I schedule calls and they're like, one's good for you. And I'm like, honestly, like, any time is good for me because every time is bad for me.
14: We went upstate to my parents' house, which um, put my mothering on display. I immediately reverted to my teenage self. I was like angry with my very sick parents. And at the same time, I was trying to work. There's days I wake up
17: and I say to myself, should I just close my business down? I love my job so much but it's so miserable to do it this way. And it's so hard and I can't do a
13: good job at it.
11: It's hard for me to turn off working brain. So even when I'm in mom mode, I'm like, I gotta get this done, I gotta do this.
13: So on top of like just the day-to-day stuff was I feel like almost constant feelings of defeat. So it was, it was a point where I was like,
7: uh-oh, daydreamer. How do you balance these things?
17: The kids used to go and be taken care of by other people for enormous stretches of time, and now they never go.
11: It's more relentless, right? Like there's no break like there normally would be.
17: Them going away is how everything else in my life happened. Every single other thing depended on that, and now it doesn't exist.
13: You never leave work, you're working all the time, and your work is never finished.
11: From the moment she wakes up to the moment she goes to sleep, things are happening.
13: Having my kids from
17: nine to nine. every day was
13: interesting. I loved it. But I don't, I, I'm thankful and grateful for the teachers. I found it hard to be as positive as I felt like I needed to be, because it sucked.
11: There's a lot of things that I'm letting go now that I wouldn't have.
13: Started just giving into
14: watching shows. So we'd be like, you're going to watch Mary Poppins, which is very long and quite good, I think.
17: More screen time is something that I feel a little bit ashamed of. Now they watch too many shows. And they love ipads which makes me feel terrible definitely more yelling for sure like running over you know like grabbing them and just being like you cannot do this before this happened i was not a yeller like i really didn't yell
7: when i started hearing other parents complaining you know my son did this i yell i'm upset like i'm through this is too hard like i'm like okay this is Not bad. At least I'm not the only one going
17: through it. I have, I have like already crested and now lost the power of yelling.
11: Shorter fuse now than normal.
17: Just because I think I've had less, you know,
11: less time for myself. The ongoing nature of it. There's not these moments of you can be someone else besides being a parent.
13: It's texting. It's a lot. My
17: wife works in the ER at Elmhurst Hospital, coming home at two in the morning, you know, needing to like strip down outside, take a shower, sleep in another room. And then when she's woken up with the kids at six in the morning, her capacity to deal with that, you know, is
13: non-existing. There's a constant pool of anxiety.
14: I would wake up four o'clock in the morning with my heart
12: racing, jumping up out of the bed like, what is wrong? And I didn't know what it was until I went to the doctor. So I explained to him that I had three children and that I'm a wife and that I'm a teacher. And he was like, you have to calm down. When I felt like the fuse was shortened, then my husband jumped in and said, okay, take a breather, walk around. My oldest, he said, mom, do you need a walk? I think you need a walk, mom.
11: Right, we weren't really meant to do this in isolation. This has is normally been a social job, like a whole like the village, you know what i mean? Like we aren't like a, one adult and one child in a cave somewhere. Like there's a group of humans.
13: You have to like miss your kids sometimes. If you see them all day every day, you so rarely have that experience where you're like, "Hey." <laughs> and as much as i want my kid to kids to be in school and things for things to go back to normal, like i just don't think it's the time yet.
12: The children are not ready for classrooms. I don't even want to think about it.
13: I've never
17: had lived my life like this where I don't know what's happening in the next week or month or
13: next six months. I honestly don't know. I'm like kind of in denial and shock still and t- traumatized from the spring. I don't know when this will ever change.
17: But to me, that's like you can't even think about that. Do you do this on an airplane, I'm always like, just don't, you don't have to think about anything else about the airplane. You're just like, you're in this moment and you're doing whatever you're doing on the airplane so that you don't feel crazy. Don't think about how many more hours you're gonna have to be stuck in this airplane.
11: There's also like kind of a resignedness. It's like, this is what it is. I just better get
13: used to it. This is what moms have been doing the whole time. We've all been working from home, juggling a million things. Now everyone else is like doing it for five seconds, you know?
17: Society and government have ne- have done nothing to help moms work and everything is actually the opposite. It makes it harder. And so, like, this has just made it extra terrible hard, but it was already so hard. I just hope no one's surprised by that. Hearing from these moms
4: felt like a form of therapy for me. No, it didn't change the outcome of my life. I'll still be balancing my workload and around-the-clock childcare. But there's comfort in knowing I'm not alone. like it's really fun and positive and there's a lot of people here and there's a lot of a lot of things to do like malls and parks and just a lot of places and amazing it's just a lot and just all the places you can go just walking around the city i think it's because like it's just a lot of things like it's mostly for everybody that hasn't been here like they say the same things like it's just the city and that's just what they say
12: i agree with she said yeah it's just
4: kind of that like a lot of people just say the same things about the city Probably
0: and everything they haven't been here and they
4: haven't like people come here one time and then they talk about the same things over and over it's now dead
2: to me. um anything else um seems like it might be warmer today than it was yesterday
17: like the weather says that it's sunny today but it looks very cloudy you know
8: yeah that's the that's the haze
3: haze.
8: yeah you guys all heard that this haze is actually from the forest fires no i actually i noticed it on uh monday coming in because like the sunset you could see the sun and it was like that deep Red that you like you see in LA because of smog. And I was like, I've never seen this, this sun like that
0: here. Wow. Like,
8: there's no way that's from the wildfires. And then today on NPR, they had a meteorologist saying that the haze is, is actually from the forest fires. But it's like, it's a high, super high altitude where it's not going to affect air quality. But yeah, it's,
3: it's there.
7: How is that? I mean, wow. It yeah. blows my mind.
6: Thing you got Ugh. your air purifier. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, exactly. Everybody yeah, exactly. <laughs> buy that air. Everyone you air come <laughs>
2: <laughs> wow, that sucks.
17: Sorry, I'm just thinking there are other air purifiers on Amazon. So um
2: you guys should invest someone. Yeah, do that now. Yeah. <laughs> um was a fire have to there was what?
5: A fire tornado.
2: Where?
6: In California, and there was um, a video on, on Twitter, my sister oh
2: showed gosh. Oh, God. <laughs> this is so bad. Uh, this is like sci fi channel level. I don't know, guys.
3: No, you
17: guys, this is like what we <laughs> Muslims call, which is like the end of times. I think we're all gonna die. We're the dinosaurs of our
4: time. This is like how it happens. The gender reveal are <laughs> our
2: doom. It really feels that way. This really feels like the end of the world.
8: <laughs> was, uh, and the stuff with the hurricanes too. I mean, it's yeah. there's five hurricane systems. It's like the first time since I think
6: 1970.
3: when
8: we had that.
6: Yeah. And then yeah. recently China had a massive flood as well that was um it covered like the tolls like one of the big statues that were over there.
2: Jesus.
6: Uh, yeah,
4: crazy.
2: Well, go green, y'all.
10: Chelsea, thanks for taking the time to chat today. Last we spoke, things were uh, unsettled, I guess, to say the least. And that was maybe back in April.
16: Yeah, in April, I don't think I had my PPP money yet. I was dealing with the banks, and I'm, I'm trying to recall this. There have been a lot of different phases of this pandemic. There's less chaos now. The picture is bleak, but I also think we've sort of wrapped our heads around that. And at this point, it feels like we're just trying to survive.
10: So tell me about your, your different establishments. I noticed that uh, Pakenya.
16: We closed Pakenya. We didn't have a lot of time left on the lease. And then not knowing whether or not we'd be in a position to remain open anyway with COVID. It just seemed like it was time. The other places are all very different. The outdoor seating was a game changer for places, obviously, that had a lot of frontage. So White Tiger has benefited a lot and Olea is doing well and is pretty healthy. Of course, all of this is just savings to, I hope, get through the winter anyway. You know, I don't think anyone's, like, making any money, but at least we're able to keep going.
10: And I noticed, you know, as I walked up and down to Cal, it feels like a European street yeah. scene. Wait, Tiger is a great example of that. We have
16: a lot of frontage, and they've shut the street down on the weekend. And eating out there is like being in Europe. I mean, it's it's so much fun to eat at that restaurant right now. well has been able to take over a lot of street that we weren't able to before. But, you know, places like Barbalina suffer because they're in the middle of the block on Myrtle Avenue. We have a great backyard space, and and that's seatable and doing well. But it's sort of random whether or not you can do well with this model. And we've, of course, all had to use, you know, PPP money to do these build-outs outside on the street. So there's been an investment aspect to it. So it's challenging. I do think the outdoor seating has been one of the most exciting things to happen in the New York restaurant scene. I hope that they'll continue even in non-COVID times to consider some ways of keeping some of this alive because it's actually been very fun and really the
10: only <laughs> um, upside to the whole thing. So what about in the winter? Can you keep the seats outside and maybe have heat lamps?
16: Yeah. Well, first of all, they there's a lot of Regulation, you have to have an electric heat source. Those electric costs are extremely high when it's cold. Or it has to be hardwired from inside your restaurant, the gas. But really, really good heat lamps and heat umbrellas and stuff are very expensive as well. So there's that.
10: How has the city been as a partner through this, obviously understanding that the restaurant scene is so essential to the lifeblood of this
16: city. I don't envy anyone having to look at the big picture of the city right now and to handle this. However, the mom and pop restaurants that we've all come to love in New York are in grave danger of becoming extinct if they don't offer some sort of comprehensive relief to restaurants. The 25% seating, while maybe hopeful, it's risky from a health perspective, and it is not going to cover the bills. Just the labor alone that we're going to have to have, especially with all of the new regulation to keep it, I can't even say COVID safe, because we really don't know what that is. So it's, it's a very risky thing that we're doing by allowing indoor seating. Many people are choosing not to do it. They're going to continue to just do delivery and takeout, see how it goes, and then open to 50% if the you know numbers stay down for COVID. One thing we do know is that science has told us that, that covid spreads from being indoors for long periods of time or or repeat exposure and so is it safe? We don't know. I think maybe this is a step toward a, a, a right direction, but we are not going to make it.
10: What is what is your plan with your establishments? We're
16: we're not sure what we're going to do. Ultimately, we're close to the line. And some of my places may open and others may not yet, you know. At the end of the day, you you basically, it's a risk analysis. You say, okay, the numbers are really, really low right now. We are going to do everything we can in terms of sanitizing, in terms of taking people's temperatures. But we all know that taking somebody's temperature isn't going to do it, you know. I would feel a lot more comfortable if we had some sort of rapid testing that was remotely accurate, you know, that we could offer before people come in. There's so many ways you can potentially work it. I mean, I think ALEA will probably do the 25%, but there's a lot of planning and and talking about it before the decision is made, and we're really not decided.
10: uh, Yeah, I mean, I guess it's like it falls to you to make such a huge decision. Where the health of your employees, your staff, yeah. the diners, everyone, but it is such a yeah. A I crazy think
16: I think people thing. will people will come in because there there's definitely a, enough of the population that isn't scared personally, and and maybe they don't interact with vulnerable populations. I don't know. The bars in Bushwick that I'm a part of, I think they'd be packed as soon as they could be. I really do. Is that right to do? <laughs> I mean, you know, you're faced with this kind of stuff. And one thing that I forgot to mention is now we're we're allowed to put a COVID-19 surcharge on our check of up to 10% and pass that cost on to the customer. And I don't want to be in that position where I am now asking my customers to help me cover this. I, I really, I think it's like a lose-lose situation, but it's something where the government can go, look, we, we did something for you. Well, you didn't. You know, we really need rent relief. That is like the thing that would relieve so many of
10: these situations. And so how, how much longer do you think you can hang on like this with a lot of this uncertainty?
16: I'm very lucky because at both Barbalinas and at Olea, we have landlords that have been really generous. And that's been tremendously helpful. <laughs> At White Tiger, we were already not paying rent because we'd had a horrendous fire and were shut down for a year and a half. So we're able to sort of pull through. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. It's very uncertain. I mean, a lot will depend on whether or not the numbers spike, right? Like for all of us in all of our lives, you know, our the schools, the public transportation is now busy again. What's going to happen? We don't know. So everyone is sort of just waiting and seeing and and uh hoping it's gonna be okay.
7: What's dogging what's docking. It's low for on the scene, y'all fall. Okay. Nah, nah,
17: too. GDK for Kirk and Vid, Barry shit, L T K Brow Boy Barry, my son Brow
4: Boy in New York is dead, bro. New York not dead. in thing, Because I feel like uh People that saying New York is dead, they not from New York. They just think that. we in Broward, Broward
17: City. This is Broward City right here. Like, It's, really like, it's the really like the members right here.
4: We That's where you at. We're, here, we're in Franklin Crown King. Heights. Like, yeah, it could,
1: it, could. it could be antisocial sometimes, you know, but sometimes, sometimes. You heard the question. Like, you heard the question. Yeah. How do you feel about people saying New York is dead? The- how do I feel? Like,
4: oh yeah. my! It could
1: be better sweet I say America is dead and if anything, New York is the heartbeat uh, that's keeping it still pumping. You know? That's it. That's all right. Uh, cause just people still living their life. You know? I mean, everywhere else is like a shutdown right now. People still enjoying themselves, going out, and they call it the Big Apple for a reason.
3: (laughs) Now you imagine. Hi, Nadash.
7: Hi, Fred. It's lunchtime. What are
0: you making me, first of all?
7: Today we are in my kitchen in East Flatbush, Brooklyn, and I thought what's more comforting. Then a grilled cheese sandwich. My name is Nadej Fleurmond and I am a caterer and author in East Flatbush, Brooklyn. My latest book is titled Taste of Solitude. I was born in Port au Prince, Haiti, but my family is from the south of Haiti in a place called Lekai. And uh, they are known for amazing food flavored with coconut in everything. <laughs> First, I do not make my grilled cheese sandwich without my cast iron pan. So I'm going to place that on the fire. And then we have here some good multi-grain bread. And then, of course, some butter. What kind of cheeses do you use? I love gouda. I especially smoke gouda. I love Gruyere. And I love me a nice, sharp cheddar. So I like my cheeses to be very pungent and flavorful, but you can have fun with it. I always recommend using a cheese blend. So those are the three that I'm using today. And then I have some mayonnaise. The other pieces that I have that makes this extra special are some caramelized onions, parsley, some thyme leaves, give us a nice Caribbean flavor. And then we also have some chopped, scallions, which I'm going to cut up right now. I cut them into rings, and then we're ready to go. I'm going to turn on my fire. I remember coming to this country not wanting to eat the food, because I left Haiti when I was seven years old, Um, moved to the United States for the first time to live with my dad. And he always cooked Haitian food. So I didn't love McDonald's like everybody else loved my sauce, saucepois, my black rice, my grill, fried pork. That's what I wanted to take to school lunches. I didn't realize at eight and nine that was not cool. At first, when kids would make fun of that and I'd just be embarrassed about that, then I was like, you know what? This is what brings me comfort. When I was away from home in college and being homesick, I started cooking Haitian food for the white folks, for the Black folks, for the Asian Serious Association. And then I realized when food was around, people paid attention. Not only is this a great opportunity to have people taste the cuisine of Haiti, it's also a great opportunity to educate about Haiti. Beyond what I grew up seeing on the news here about poorest country in the Western hemisphere, Do you know we have great art? Do you know we have some of the best beaches in the world? Do you know we have the first Black Republic? So I started using food and events as a way of creating those kind of conversations.
0: How high should the fire and stuff?
7: Your fire should be a medium high. Now that our pan is hot, we're going to add our butter. You just want enough butter to coat the bottom of your pot. You're not frying the... sandwich. You just want it to have a nice crust. Okay. And we're going to add our scallions in there because that's what's going to coat our bread. Our chopped parsley, sprinkle it all in the bottom, and our thymies. This is what makes it gourmet.
0: (laughs) Oh, so those things, so with regard to process, those things go in before the bread? Yes,
7: they do because that's what's going to coat the bottom of your thing while they're slowly cooking you're just gonna coat the outside of your bread with some mayonnaise you could use butter i like to use mayo lightly we place one side down and we coat the other side Through a dish, you understand class structures, you understand dynamics of communities, right? Why is the soup jumu, the pumpkin soup that celebrates Haiti's independence so revered? Because that is the dish that the slaves weren't allowed to eat. And the slaves were preparing that dish for those slave masters. So when we got our independence, you know what? To show that all men are created equal, I am going to eat this very dish that the slave masters ate. But then that same society also used this food as a way to oppress others. So when you speak to a Haitian, they'll be like, I don't eat bulgur. I don't eat cornmeal because that is peasant food, like breadfruit. Oh my God. I bought a breadfruit the other day. I nearly passed out because the breadfruit nearly cost me $10. But these things grow like weeds in certain parts of Haiti, and so it's considered poor man's food. So when you're in school with your classmates, depending on what the kid is eating for lunch, you're able to tell, does his family have money or not? Cooking for myself was almost becoming foreign to me, pre-pandemic. During the pandemic, I like the rest of Americans, came back into the kitchen and reconnected with food in a way that I didn't even realize I was disconnected, funny enough. Because one, we were home, we were by ourselves. Two, I think food was perhaps one of the few places where we had some level of control during a time when we really felt like we had no control over anything. It provided real solace as we're going through this time of discomfort, uncertainty, and just straight-up fear at times. I remember going to Fort Greene Park, and it was a run for Ahmad Arbery. I remember just feeling so tired and so drained, because it was like, yet another hashtag, yet another innocent person killed over racism. I was in the kitchen getting that therapy through cooking but then the world was still like throwing all of these things at me and i was experiencing all of them it forced me to really go back in terms of my mindset like food as a connector like we are more alike than we are different i kept thinking like logic would show people that but i don't think the world is as logical as i'd like to think (laughs) at this point you lower your fire to medium-low heat, and then we're gonna add our cheese on one side of the bread, the slice that's in the pan. We're loading it up with our cheese.
0: This is not the cheese, Velveeta, whatever that you pull out of the plastic. You gotta shred it. you have to
7: grate your cheese. You have to grate your cheese. You want that nice, fresh, comforty velvety taste. You hear that sizzle? So, mayo side down load up your cheese, load up your caramelized onions, then we add the other side, and then we flip.
0: Oh, that sound of the, that's what I'm talking about.
7: Food heals just on the technical, nutritional value of food, right? It heals in that sense, and I think there's a connection that occurs when you cook for yourself. There's a spiritual connection. There's a soulful connection. So while, yes, it has this, it has protein, it has vitamin, there's also the element of kind of like this consciousness. What am I feeding my body? What am I feeding my soul? And what are the repercussions of that? When I come home, I noticed there's no fresh food store right on the corner, but then there's fried chicken places everywhere. There's liquor stores everywhere. These are not like accidents. These are systematic. And we know it happens for a reason. My dad was the kind of person, I had to go to the Korean vegetable place, get a fresh coconut, have them crack it so I could blend it to make my rice, if I wanted to make coconut rice even though I give people the substitution because I do understand lifestyles are very different. But I also think, you know, as we cook more, we're more conscious about what is the difference between using frozen peas and actually snapping them yourself because that was something I did during the pandemic, which I hadn't done in years where i bought fresh peas and actually cracked it open, pulled out. So just that element of reconnecting and touching those ingredients make a difference in terms of, The flavor, yes, but also just like your connection to the food. And also, I think in terms of how you in turn deal with the world and take in the world. Now we flipped it. We have our nice grilled cheese. Our cheese is melted. Oh, it's a nice golden dark brown. Of course, it's a matter of taste, but I like mine dark brown and crunchy. You want those nice herbs—the scallions, the thyme, and the parsley—that you sprinkled in the butter. You want those to have a nice, crunchy, dark brown color.
0: Girl, that looks so good. I want to jump through the screen right now.
7: It is simple. It's easy. It's comforting. It's really yummy. (laughs) And now I have lunch. (laughs) We. Always understood care and love and attention was rooted in us nourishing the people we care about. And if we go back to our childhood and our friend, if you like somebody, you give them some of your candy, right? <laughs> you give them a piece of your hero sandwich, right? That you just bought for $2. <laughs> I'm sure hero is like $7 now, right? <laughs> because food really is love, it's how you show you care.
8: city is not dead, I feel like it's more like sleeping, taking a For a lot of people, it might have been a little bad, but sometimes you gotta look at things in different perspectives. Right now, a lot of people that didn't spend as much time with family are valuing family more because they're able to spend time with their family. Things that people stopped doing, they're doing now. It is very tragic, the whole COVID-19 situation, but the situation, there's nothing you could do about it, but move forward and try to do the best that you can with it. Uh, June 9th, I became a father. I had my first child, which is great, so everything this year for me wasn't bad news. It gave me an additional reason for me to live and work harder and move on and seek the future.
4: Hey everyone, it's junior reporter Griff City, And I have come to say that I have some news. Today, I read a book called Jabari Jumps by Gaia Cornwall. And the last thing I'm going to say is that the purpose of the book is to do what you're scared to do. It can be rewarding. You can feel great after it. It's just a good thing to do. Thank you for listening. Oh, wait! I have one last thing to say about the book. And I'm sure this is the last thing. Is that the the kid does not want to jump off the high dive, but finally he does. I think it was pretty cool. Thank you for listening. For real this time, Brooklyn!
2: Brooklyn USA is produced by me, Sasha Mathias.
17: And me, Emily Bogosian,
11: And me... Shirin Bahri.
8: And me, Charlie Hoxie. And me, Carole Palmer. And me, Ross Tuttle.
12: And me, Mayumi Sato.
2: With help this week from Fred Brown, Keisha Cole, Shayna Feinberg, Brick Radio Junior Correspondent, Griff City, Taylor Cook, and Lauren Germain.
12: I don't feel New York
15: is dead, man. I just feel it's a matter of time before things get back together. It's just as a people, we gotta be, we gotta protect each other, unless we protect each other. The mass is for you from me. You know what I mean? This can't yeah. stop in the virus, but it's just for you, for me. New yeah. York can never be dead. Yeah. How you going to dead yeah. New York City? It's the yeah. biggest, stop. brightest city in, in the world.
2: <laughs> if you want to share your story, check the show notes for a link to our handy guide on how to record and send us a voice memo. Well,
4: quite honestly, I feel like New York is more, Brooklyn is more alive than it's ever been.
2: And if you like what you hear, comment, like, share, and subscribe, and follow at BrickTV on Twitter and Instagram for updates.
0: You know, New York is not really dead. New York is just sleeping for a while. These things clear up, and you will see everything start going back together
2: again. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit BrickArtsMedia.org/slash radio.
8: In recognition of his superb and extraordinary bravery under extremely stressful conditions, on the late afternoon and evening of Tuesday, September 22nd, 1992, In the matter of nine stitches, Charles Thomas Hoxie of Evanston, Illinois, USA, is hereby publicly commended and awarded this $25 gift certificate to be used at Toys R Us or any other store of his choice. Richard J. Hoskins, witness to bravery and guarantor of the gift.